family, we are so excited to have you here with us this morning. Now listen closely because we have some important announcements for you. On March 24th at Foundations Young Adults, we'll be meeting at the movies for $5 movie night. We are going to see I Still Believe. We're still waiting for the showtimes to be released, so stay tuned to hear more about it. Again, we would love to have you join us, and don't forget to invite a friend. Before the joy of Easter, there was the darkness of the cross. Good Friday is a time we remember and reflect on the sacrifice that has changed the course of humanity forever. Just as 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he will bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So please join us April 10th at 6 p.m. for a really special night of worship and communion as we remember the sacrifice our Savior made. Guys, we are getting so excited about Easter. It is right around the corner, and we would love to have you come be a part of this awesome day as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. This will take place on our church land at 7201 Flat Rock Road. After the message, we will have egg hunts, activities for all ages, music, and some awesome food vendors. So be here April 12th at 11 a.m. We hope to see you and definitely invite a friend. We are so happy to announce that registration is now open for the 412 Student Ministry Youth Camp sold out. You can find the church website below to find the registration form. The dates for the camp are June 1st through 5th at Laguna Beach, Florida. The cost to attend is $350, but you have to register by May 1st, otherwise that cost will go up. We would also like to remind you that you have the opportunity to sponsor a student to attend if you do feel led. If you have any questions at all, please contact Stephen Fortberry. Once again, we just want to say thank you so much for spending your Sunday morning here worshiping with us. We hope you have a great day and an even greater week. Hey, good morning, y'all. Hey, before we get started this morning, I want to do two things. I want to, I've, got a, I've got an announcement or two as well, but... First thing I want to say is welcome again to the folks. If this is your first time here, <clears throat> it'll be a different kind of uh, message and service. But if this is your first time here, we want to get one of these in your hand. And Richard and Rhonda Moore are off to the side. And they, if you'd raise your hand, they'll get one of these in your hands. Inside of there and in the seat back in front of you is a connection card. If you just let us know that you were here, that's all. Um, and, and as well, this is a way to connect kind of with our church if you need prayer about anything or if you just have a question, or whatever the case may be, you can fill this out and you can drop it in the bucket at one of these doors or in uh, one of the black boxes or give it to one of the, the people at the connections desk. <clears throat> but it is a way to connect. I want to remind you as well that we have a prayer team every Sunday that is in the back of the church back there, um, and there will as well be members of, of that prayer team down here in the front uh, at the end of our, our gathering. And these are folks that... This is going to sound odd. They're good at prayer, but they're, they're, they're passionate about prayer. They're passionate about loving on folks, and so they want to, to pray with you. They want to pray for you, whatever the need may be. So I encourage you uh, to, to reach out to one of them, to go in the back or to come down front uh, toward the end of our, our, our gathering. I encourage you to do that. I want to tell you one little announcement that was not on the video, and that is that right after church today, there'll be a, a, a uh, kind of an interest meeting for the jail ministry. The jail ministry started back in September or October, and we have not shined a light on that ministry probably in the way that we should have, but today there is an interest meeting for anybody that has any desire to just hear some, uh, some words uh, uh, about that ministry, and that ministry in the short four or five months uh, God has really borne a lot of fruit out of that ministry. 
a lot of people over 20 who woke up one day, lost, went to bed that night, found in the Muscogee County Jail. So it's a, it's a great thing. Yeah, that is an awesome thing. <clears throat> so there is, a, there is an interest meeting right after church for that. Um, so I want to tell y'all, uh, you know what, before we do that, let me pray. Lord, we come to you today uh, in the midst of a broken, fallen world. Lord, that, that song that our worship team just led us in said to look to your face. What an incredible phrase. What incredible words. And that's because you're an incredible God. And so, Lord, my prayer is that whatever happens here this Sunday, truth is whatever happens whenever we gather, that we would look to your face, that we would understand and be able to get our arms around just this idea that you are the great healer because you really are. And so, Lord, let every word that is spoken today be your words. Let every word that is spoken today point people to you. Point people to you. And so I lift this, this body of folks up to you in your son's precious name. Amen. So, look, today um, there's not going to be any funny stories about my dog Rudy. There's not going to be any funny stories about many of the stupid things that I say to my wife. There's not going to be, this is really is a, a more serious time. It's a serious time in our country. You know, it's a serious time in our church family. And so this is going to be a little more of a serious message. I think this, I think laying over the top of this message, uh, over the top of what we do, and really over the top of the way we live our lives, is that I believe, and I really do believe this, that a scared world needs a fearless church. And I don't mean this church. I mean the body of believers across all of Christendom. The world is scared because the world is lost, right? That's why the world is scared. And the world needs believers to be fearless, not stupid. You know, not stupid, not coughing all over each other and sneezing all over each other, not that. But we need to be a fearless, courageous, praying people. And so I want that um, to kind of lie over what we talk about this morning. And in God's unbelievable providence and sovereignty, the message today that was on the schedule, you know, I'm a scheduled guy, and so we've got a preaching calendar. You know, I don't just make this stuff up on Sunday mornings. We've got a calendar, and today we're in Habakkuk. We're at the end of the book of Habakkuk. And at the end of the book of Habakkuk, this did not, like, this did not surprise God. He set it up. And so we're going to be in chapter 3 of that, of that prophecy that Habakkuk wrote about 600 years or so before Christ. And we've gone through the first two chapters um, in, the, in the last several weeks. And then last week we had Big Lee. Was Big Lee awesome if y'all were here? Big Lee, what a great guy. So Lee was here last week, but before that we had gone through the first couple of chapters. And if you remember, um, at the beginning of Habakkuk's prophecy, Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord. And he's crying out to the Lord really in despair. And he's saying what, what he's asking and what he's crying out to the Lord is how in the world can you let these horrific things happen to people? And not, he says not even just people but to your people. God, how can you allow this to happen? And he's crying that out to the Lord. Two weeks ago, the week before uh, Lee spoke, we were in chapter 2. And we talked, in particular, we dove down on verse 4, the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we, we discussed that we are saved, we are saved through faith in Christ alone. 
that we are saved through faith in Christ alone. The, the whole full gospel message. And our walk, the way that we walk through life every day when we wake up and our feet hit the floor, the way that we walk through life is a, as a believer is a walk by faith. We walk through life as a light to a world because we're walking by faith. Today I want us to look at chapter 3, particularly um, the last three verses of chapter 3, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into a lot of other places in the scripture, a lot of other passages and verses. And then this verse, or these verses in Habakkuk 3, all of chapter 3 is a prayer. Habakkuk starts off in chapter 1, and he's questioning God, and they kind of go back and forth. Well, he lands in chapter 3, and this is his prayer. It's like a closing prayer. And verses 17, 18, and 19 are the, the sort of the, the closing out of Habakkuk's prayer. And so here's where verse 17 says, Though the fig tree should not blossom. Now I want you all to think about the image that Habakkuk is painting in this prayer. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the if you look, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the, in the stalls. This is a description, and remember this is a prophecy now that Habakkuk, this has not happened yet. This is an oracle. This is a prophecy that Habakkuk is uh, given us here. But it is describing absolute, complete, total economic ruin. It is, com- it is describing complete devastation. There is no produce. There is no crops. There, the sheep and the cattle are all dead. There is simply not enough food to sustain the people in Judah and Jerusalem, and there's not enough food to sustain the animals. Colleges have closed. High schools and middle schools and elementary schools have shut down. You know, all everything is shutting down. Everything is closing up. There's nothing left. That is the description, y'all, that Habakkuk is painting for us. The NBA canceled the season. The March Madness is not happening. Everything is in destruction. That is this image that Habakkuk gives us. And he paints that, really, there's famine in the land. And he paints that image. And the very next verse, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, all of that. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So despite circumstances, in the face of the destruction, in the face of the circumstances, Habakkuk says his Lord is his strength. He says he will triumph and he will rejoice in the God of his salvation. He has hope. That is the picture that Habakkuk is painting. He has hope. Hope, y'all. Think about the transformation from him of, of Habakkuk from the beginning of this prophecy where he is whining, how long, Lord, are you going to let this stuff go on? Why, Lord, are you just sitting back and doing nothing, not even answering my prayers? Why are you sitting back and doing nothing while the whole world around me is collapsing, while the bad guy wins? Have y'all ever felt that way? The whole world is collapsing, Lord, and you're doing nothing about it. That is what Habakkuk said at the beginning. But in three short chapters, he gets to this. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He is my strength. He is my hope. Well, what is it do you think that happened to Habakkuk? 
what do you reckon happened that, that kind of brought him to this conclusion that is different? Here's what I think. I think that he has bought into God's sovereignty. At the end of the day, I think through, through this prophecy, he has bought into the idea that God just may know better. And I think that he's found hope in the idea that God just may know better. Now, you remember, again, this is a prophecy. It had not happened yet. But I, we talked two or three weeks ago that about 15 or so years after Habakkuk's prophecy, about 15 or so years after he penned this book, it happened. Nebuchadnezzar. And I, if you all remember, we had this Lord of the Rings thing because in my little simple mind, that's the way I envision Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar rallying up his army to go invade Jerusalem. It probably looked something like that. Well, at about the same time, at about the same time, the prophet Jeremiah was on the stage. In chapter 29 in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah's prophecy, is set into a, the same time frame, the same events when Nebuchadnezzar invaded uh, Judah and Jerusalem, laid siege to Jerusalem for over a year, took thousands of captives, killed thousands of people. And if you all remember, he put a hook in their, a fish hook in their bottom lip and strung them one to the other to march them the about 800-mile trek to Babylon. He left Jerusalem in absolute destruction, complete economic ruin. It was exactly what Habakkuk said. Complete economic ruin, burning. The temple was destroyed, you know, which is the Jews' place was the temple. So he wrecks the temple, and Jerusalem was in ruins. So chapter 29 of the, of the book of Jeremiah is a letter to the first exiles in Babylon. And verse 1 says this, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah had the heart of a shepherd, absolute heart of a shepherd. And this letter... Uh, God spoke through Jeremiah in this letter to encourage the exiles that are in Babylon. And he said in verse 11, and I want to preface this with a part of this message is from a message I preached uh, last year, this part of it. So if you think you've heard some of these words, you have, because this part of this message was from last year. And so verse 11, you see it on on, you know, you go to Hobby Lobby and you see pictures with this message on it. You see, it says, excuse me, this verse all the time. It's a famous quote verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Well, he says, plans I have for you. Plans I have for you. Literally, those words are the Lord's declaring, I'm the one that knows the thoughts that I think towards you. That's what plans are. In this language, I'm the one, God says, I'm the one that knows what I'm thinking towards you. And, he, and those, my thoughts for you are welfare. Well, that word in Hebrew, welfare, is shalom. That word, you lots of times see this verse quoted with prosperity there. That's a terrible translation. At least the way that we in English understand the word prosperity. This passage has nothing to do with money. The word shalom means peace or contentment or security, or well-being. So the, the, uh, this translation of welfare is really what God's plans. What are his thoughts? What are his plans? 
his desires for us, it's peace. It's peace. So why is he telling them, because remember this is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon, why would he be telling them um, that he knows the plans or he knows the thoughts or he knows the intentions that he has for them and that those thoughts, those plans, those intentions are for peace and they're not for evil, they're not for disaster, they're not for calamity. What is the point? And I believe that God's point here really is to give them two things. And the text tells us in verse 11, it's about hope and it's about a future. Hope it's, is, is an expectation. This is a future and this is an eternal future that he's talking about. This is not necessarily an in-the-moment thing. When he says, I want to give you hope, peace, hope, and a future, it's an eternal thing that he's talking about. Sometimes that word is even translated as reward. So he's telling them, and he's telling us this same thing. Would y'all please trust me? I am trustworthy. I am faithful. Trust me. He's saying, I've got this. He said, my plan for you is peace and hope and a future. Despite, despite how bad it seems in the moment. Despite the storm. In the face of the storm. He says, trust my timing. Be patient and let me do that thing that I do. That is what the Lord is saying. Hope, y'all, it is, it is hope. At the end of the day, there is hope because the promise is that God is sovereign. The promise is that he has our backs, that he is working it out. In the background, he was doing all kind of stuff in Habakkuk's background, and Habakkuk had no idea what was going on. He is working stuff out in your life right now that you have absolutely no idea that he's doing. That is what he does. It's almost like he can be a big chess player up there moving the pieces around and you don't even know it yet. You don't know it, but he's working those things out. And ultimately, we win. That's what we know. When it's all said and done, you throw it all in a bucket, stir it up. At the end of the day, we win. And I think laying right, uh, like right on top of Jeremiah chapter 29, I believe is Romans chapter 8. Six or seven hundred years later, Paul wrote Romans. I think Romans 8 lays right on top of that same, that same passage. And there is this huge promise. It is a huge promise in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. And Paul wrote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's some important pieces of that verse of Romans 8, 28. Four or five important pieces. We're going to go through three of those this morning. First of all, he begins verse 28 with, and we know. This is a major, those are three major words, and we know. They're set in contrast really to two verses prior to that in verse 26. And verse 26 says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. Here's something that we don't know. Paul says, here's something that we don't know. We don't, you really don't know how to pray. The Holy Spirit comes along and helps us to know how we ought to pray. But here's something that we do know. It's what he says in, in verse 28. Here's something that we do know. We do know, Paul's saying, yeah, there may be lots and lots of stuff, lots of things that we don't know, but here is something that we do. Sure, as I'm standing here right now, we know this. And the first thing that we know is that whatever Paul is about to talk about, whatever it is, 
It is for believers. It is for those that love God. Is that not what the text says? For those who love God. It is for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, whose purpose? My purpose? Your purpose? No, his purpose. This is about him and his purpose and his will. So that is a foundational thing. This verse gets misquoted all the time. This is a promise for believers. It is a pro- it's explicitly is stated that way. This is a promise for believers. And it is all about God's will. And it is all about God's purposes. He is the boss and this is his deal. It is his deal. So number one, we know this. Number two is this. What is the good that he speaks about in, in verse 28? Immediately we can get the beginning. Now hang with me on this. We can get kind of the beginning of his answer if we look at the very next verse, verse 29, which should be, yeah, verse 29. The first good is right there for a believer, for one that he foreknew, the text says, verse 29, says he's predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Everything is going to work together for good because God has predestined it, namely that we would be conformed to the image of his son that we would be saved. We can't be conformed to the image of his son if we're not saved. And I think that is the first good that Paul is talking about here because it's in the very next verse. Look at verse 30 now. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He glorified. We as believers, at the end of it, we will be glorified. I think that is the second good that Paul's talking about is our glorification. But here's what I think. I think that there are a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of life between these two. There's a whole lot of things in between these two. There's a whole lot of God's purposes kind of in between these two. There's a whole lot of pleasant, wonderful, pleasurable events and experiences between those two. But there's also a whole lot of events that cause pain and suffering in between those two. Everything, everything is going to work to bring us into conformity with Christ. And everything is going to serve God's purposes to bring us into our final glory where we share in the glory of the Son. That's the second, that's the good, this idea of good is our second question. The last question is this. In verse 28, what are, the, what are the all things? What are the all things? All things work together for good. What are some of those things that Paul talks about? Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 36. It's on the screen. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything that is is from him. Everything that is is through him. Everything that is is to him everything, whether it's positive or whether it's painful, whether it's big or whether it's small, or whether it feels really good or it feels really horrible. Everything, nothing sneaks up on God. Nothing sneaks up on him. You think this coronavirus surprise, God said, oh, look what happened. No, none of this sneaks up on him. Nothing, good or bad, pleasant or painful, none of it sneaks up on him. It is, and it all happens underneath his watch. And I'm not going to sit and tell you that he caused that. I'm not saying that. I'm not. But it did not surprise him, and it happened under his watch. 
all of the things, all things, are absolutely, at the end of it all, ultimately, are going to serve His purposes. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. Him who does what? Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So does, is he going to work all things or some things? Somebody answer that. The text says all. If the text says all, it doesn't mean some. It doesn't mean half. It doesn't mean three quarters. All things. Is that just the fun stuff that we love and like? No. No. It's the other stuff too. The other stuff. We live in a world where sin entered the world a long time ago. Other stuff is going to happen. Jump back to the paragraph right after Romans 8.28. What are the all things that God's talking about here that he's going to work together for good? Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? What are the these things that he's talking about in verse 31? It's the all things that he's talking about in verse 28. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now that last all things is a little bit different, a little bit different. But he is going to give us, out of his grace, everything we need. Everything we need. What does that include? Everything we need. According to who? According to Ed? No, according to the Lord. He's the one that determines what we need. Right? We, our wants and our needs are two bigly, big, big different buckets of things. But he is going to give us graciously because he loves us and he wants to conform us into the image of his son. He's going to give us everything that we need. Look at um, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? If we go through tribulation, does that mean God doesn't love us? Does that, does that mean Christ Puts us to the curb? No, it doesn't. How about distress in verse 35? How about persecution? How about famine? How about nakedness? How about danger? How about the sword? How about the coronavirus? Does the coronavirus mean that Christ does not love us? It absolutely does not. It absolutely does not. And some will say this, of, of course. Some will say, of course, these things that Paul's writing in Romans 8 of course these things won't because he won't let them happen to us. Au contraire, y'all. Paul says in the very next verse, in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, whose sake? For God's sake. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. When Paul wrote this, these things are happening to believers. The things he just described. Famine, the sword, persecution, tribulation, they're happening to believers then. They're happening to believers now. Do you think that there are believers who have contracted coronavirus? Are there believers that contract cancer? Are there believers that get run over by a bus? Are there believers that get in car accidents? They're absolutely. It was happening then and it's happening now. You've got to understand the promise, which we'll get to that in a minute. Look at verse 18 now. For I consider... Paul talking again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the junk, the stuff that we just talked about, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us all. All the suffering, 
all of these things, all of this junk are going to serve to bring him glory. They're going to be a means to an end of God bringing about good and conforming us to the image of his son and bringing a whole bunch of people with us. Well, how can that be? How can that be? Look at verse uh, 3 of chapter 5. He gives us a little glimpse at this. In verse 3 of chapter 5 of Romans, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, that ain't so easy. We rejoice in our sufferings. If everything is working out for our good, if everything is working together for good, then this is possible. It is. Well, how can that be? How can we rejoice? Well, the verse goes on. Knowing we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Y'all, this is all about hope. Jump back to Romans 8, 28. Among all the different things that we don't know, we do know this. We do know that for the believer, this is again a promise for believers, that for the believer, God works out all things, every single thing that comes at us from this broken world, everything for good to conform us into the likeness of Christ and to share in his glory. Everything, coronavirus, stock market, every single thing goes in that bucket and the Lord will stir it up and use it for his glory. And I know this too. And I think Habakkuk, based on his prayer in chapter 3, I think that he came to know this, this truth that, that few things strengthen the soul against Satan's deception. And this is going to sound maybe a little twisted, but few things serve to strengthen the soul against the deception of Satan like suffering. And I mean suffering with persevering faith. Even watching another believer suffer through something with undaunted faith. Susan and I saw I Still Believe Friday nights. Jeremy Camp's story. If you know Jeremy Camp, is a Christian artist. Jeremy Camp married. He met uh, Melissa in college. Uh, and not that long after they uh, were engaged, excuse me, prior to their engagement, we're talking about a 20-year-old girl, she is diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer or stomach cancer um, in uh, October of 2000. Yeah, in October of 2000, they're married. She's got stage 3 cancer that's metastasized. They get married in, in October of 2000. She dies in February of 2001. So we're talking four or five months. She is a shining example of walking through horrific circumstances with undaunted, undaunted, unwavering faith. Another person, Elizabeth Elliot, if you've ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot, she was a missionary. She and her husband Jim in the 50s uh, in Ecuador. They met in the mission field. They got married in the mission field in 1953. Three years later, Jim was speared to death. When's the last time you heard that? She, he was speared to death along with four other men by the very people that they were bringing Christ to. Elizabeth wrote this, his wife. She wrote, God's presence with me was not Jim's presence. That was a terrible fact. God's presence did not change the terrible fact that I was now a widow. Jim's absence thrust me, she said, forced me, hurried me to God, my hope and my only refuge. And I learned, she says, in that experience who God is. 
who he is in a way I could never have known otherwise. Elizabeth Elliot married again 16 years later to a man named Addison. Four years later, he died of cancer. Some folks have suffered more for sure, but not many people uh, like us have suffered as much as she did. Very, very few of us, I'd probably say very few people on the planet have ever championed the precious good, the precious good that God can do through terrible events in our lives like Elizabeth Elliot. Her testimony and Melissa Camp's testimony reminds me of Paul who suffered sorrow after sorrow after sorrow with joy and with enduring faith. So I want to tell you this, suffering is not a detour. This is one of your fill-in-the-blanks probably. Suffering is not a detour. Prison was not a detour for Paul. Y'all, Paul wrote half of his letters that are, that, are, that are captured in your Bibles were written with Paul in chains in Rome, in a Roman jail. And it is easy, it's so easy for us to go down the road of pitying Paul for that. But Paul himself saw the, the crazy potential in his imprisonment. Y'all, the worst, most busted up roads Paul knew were probably the greatest highways for the gospel. Look what he wrote in Philippians chapter 1. He's writing to the church at Philippi. He's writing to the brothers and the sisters in Philippi. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, well, what is the, what's that that happened to him? Wrongfully arrested, incarcerated, and left for dead. He says, I want you to know that what happened to me has really served what? Served to advance the gospel. Y'all, the gospel didn't just survive Paul's imprisonment. It prospered while he suffered. The truth of the matter is, it probably prospered probably because Paul was suffering. None of us naturally would just respond to suffering that way. We wouldn't. Unexpected trials in life, they don't just naturally overflow in hope. They don't just naturally overflow in, in selflessness. They don't just naturally we hold hands and sing choruses of kumbaya. That's not what naturally happens when trials and suffering and stuff comes into our lives. What naturally happens is we curl up in the bed and isolate ourselves, which is exactly what the devil wants you to do. We get in a pit and we can't even see out of the darkness of the pit. We become unconcerned for other people. That's what naturally kind of the, in our flesh, that's kind of what happens. But the grace of God, the saving grace of God goes to work on us. And, and, it, and he creates the opposite kind of impulses, especially in suffering, man, especially. For, for Paul, suffering wasn't a distraction. It wasn't a detour. It, it wasn't an inconvenience. It was a breakthrough. It was a breakthrough and a, and a means for what Paul cared about the most, which was what? It was the spread of the gospel and bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Well, how did the gospel kind of run while Paul sat alone in a Roman jail? The next two verses in Philippians 1. Paul wrote, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Well, who's the imperial guard? They're the praetorian guard. They were the guard that was the, they were the, I don't know if you would say platoon. I don't know all the, the, the regimental unit stuff in the military. But Bill, what would they be? About 25 or 30 guys. A squad, a couple squads. They were charged with guarding Paul. 
right? They were charged with guarding Paul. And what does Paul say? It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, those guys, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is what? It is for Christ. And most of the brothers, Paul says, having become confident in the Lord randomly, no, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. A scared world needs a fearless church. It does because the world is scared. And you can't minimize their fear. You can't tell somebody how to feel. If they feel scared, they feel scared. But we as believers should be fearless. Again, not stupid, but we should be fearless. Suffering, suffering faithfully catalyzes the gospel probably in two ways. First of all, suffering reveals or suffering exposes our purpose and our treasure while comfort and security don't. Suffering exposes what's really, really important to us in a way that the good life, quote, doesn't do. All these people knew that Paul was in prison for Christ. Many of the people there were only exposed to his love for Jesus because he was in chains. If he didn't suffer, if Paul didn't suffer, they wouldn't have been so powerfully confronted with his joy and with his message. The imperial guard would never have heard the gospel. Can you imagine being in charge of Paul and you are literally chained because the guard, they were literally chained to Paul. He had a chain around his ankle. They had a chain around their ankle 24-7. You reckon he preached the gospel to them? They couldn't get away from him. I guarantee you that. And what did God do with that? That guard, that, that Roman, those, those squads played an integral part of evangelizing Rome because Paul was chained to him. God will use all of that stuff. The apostle Peter, he said this. Y'all listen to this. This is such a truth. Many will not be curious about the hope within us unless we suffer something that requires hope. Does that make sense? Many, many people will never be curious about the hope that lives inside of me if I never suffer anything that requires that hope. Nothing advances the gospel like suffering. It energizes the gospel by, by encouraging and, and inspiring people that are going through their own junk. Again, Paul, in, in verse 14 of Philippians 1, he said, most of those brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are what? They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's enemies in Jerusalem and his spiritual enemies, they conspired to silence him in prison, but they couldn't stop. They couldn't even slow down the spread of the gospel. They tried to crush his spirit. They tried to crush uh, Paul's testimony, but all of that just put kerosene on the fire in his ministry. Paul suffered well. As he suffered well, others spoke more. As Paul suffered well, others spoke more and more boldly. Who is it that you know in your world, in your sphere of influence, that might finally speak up for Jesus because they saw you suffer well? For those that, that love the Lord, God not only works things together for good, but he works together to perfectly display his power and his love and his wisdom Despite our worst fears, flying in the face of our worst fears, flying in the face of our, our worst assumptions, suffering well actually proves the gospel over and over again. And it spurs 
the spread of the gospel further and faster by inspiring boldness in other people, by inspiring boldness in the people in our world. Don't assume that your suffering is a detour. And suffering may hinder. It may even stop some of the things in our lives. Do y'all see some of the things in your lives stopping right? It's exactly what's going on right now. School stopped. Well, you got a job. And now all of a sudden you got three little people that have to come home. Things stop. So don't assume, though, that it is just a detour. God loves to take those things and use them to magnify the little box that we sometimes have him stuffed down in. Suffering makes the gospel move at a pace that it doesn't move at when times are, quote, good. Where you think the fastest growing population of, of people who are getting saved is? It's in China. It's where the greatest persecution is. Shocker, it's where this virus came from. God uses that. He uses that persecution to lead people to himself, to bring folks into conformity with his son. I'm telling you, man, somebody, and I'm not wishing suffering upon anybody, but I'm telling you that somebody in your world needs to see you suffer well. When it happens, they need to see you suffer well. Paul suffered extraordinarily horrific things. But Paul was more concerned for other people's faith and joy in Christ than he was for his own circumstances. Paul wanted other people to know that God can be trusted. you got to know that you serve a faithful God and he can be trusted. It doesn't matter what comes. That the gospel can't and it will not be suppressed. The gospel will never, ever be suppressed. That Jesus really is worth every single thing that you and I might ever suffer. Paul's not writing from prison for pity or for sympathy. Paul's writing to galvanize their devotion to Christ. What if me and you suffered when it happened? What if we suffered with those kind of eyes? Seeing the unbelievable opportunity to encourage and inspire believers and unbelievers who are suffering. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. Notice the word that's used in here five times. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's all about being comforted by the Lord and then, and then leveraging that for someone else. I don't know, and you don't know God's good purposes in suffering. I don't. But I know that he uses that to prepare us to serve other people. And so that means, y'all, that we often suffer, sometimes severely, sometimes severely in ways that we don't understand now. And the reason that I don't think we understand now um, why this is happening is because we haven't met the person yet who will one day be comforted by our story. Often, often, often our story is leveraged for somebody else's forever that we never even meet. It may be our great, 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 great grandchild. I don't know. After all Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot endured, she could say this. The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. 
Y'all, when the deep water comes and the scorching fire comes, I want to know God the way that she did. I pray that I, want, that I will know him when the scorching fire comes the way that she did. And I want to be able to be somebody, and I want y'all to want to be the somebody that can help others suffer great pain and loss with as much faithfulness and hope in the Lord as she had. As much faith and trust in the Lord as Melissa Camp had. Elliot lost a husband to murder and then lost another husband to cancer. Paul suffered imprisonment. Melissa Camp lost her life. Look, God doesn't always answer the prayers exactly the way that we want. Jeremy Camp lost his wife madly in love with her. He had her for about six months. He lost her. The severity of their suffering, though, it does not somehow make yours irrelevant because whatever is going on in your life, big, small, wide, short, whatever, whatever it is, whatever pain, whatever disappointment, whatever trial, however big or small, we should all want to be able to say along with Paul, it has become known to all that my suffering is for Christ. We want others to watch us. We want others to, to finally meet Jesus because they saw him in how patiently we responded to the things in our lives, big or little. How patiently we responded to a delay in the line at Walmart. How patiently we responded to the lady in front of us who didn't go when the light turned green. You know, we want a brother or sister in Christ to press on because we kept praising the Lord when our cancer diagnosis came. Or when the teenager got in a car wreck. Or when the car broke down. Or when the basement flooded. Or when the coronavirus shows up or when your 401k plummets because the stock market went in the tank because the coronavirus came along. Big or small, I, my prayer is that, an, that the unbeliever will watch me and watch you and see the difference that Christ makes in the way that we walk through life. That is the prayer. Let it be big or small. Let us be and our lives be a display of the faithfulness of God. For anybody that watches us walk through suffering, somebody needs to see you suffer with Jesus well. People need to see you clinging to the promises. People need to see you treasuring his friendship. People need to see you um, praising his name when life seems to be collapsing all over the place. And most of the people, most of the people in your world have no idea that they need to see that in you. Why? Because their suffering hadn't come on them yet. But it will. It will. And when it comes, they'll remember, they'll remember the folks that they saw suffer well. I want to leave you with three great, three great principles from one very small sentence in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Starting in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First, first principle is this, we can, just like Habakkuk, we can choose to rejoice in who God is despite our circumstances. We can wake up in the morning and choose to rejoice in who he is, independent of whatever is going on in our life, independent of what, what's on the news on the TV. Number two, we can pray. We can choose to pray. We can choose to pour out our heart 
and our soul to God. He tells us that. Habakkuk is such an example of that. God is like, pour it out all on me. You know, when that veil tore 2,000 years ago in the temple in the Holy of Holies, you and I have access to God. We don't need no priest. You don't need me. You get on your knees in front of that cross and you pray to the Lord. You, there's no, you, don't need, you don't need anybody jumping in there. You don't need to go to confession somewhere. You pray directly to the Lord. Pour out your heart and soul to him. Number three is give thanks no matter what. You can cultivate and I can choose to cultivate an attitude of gratitude in our lives. We can wake up and we can give thanks. So we can pray without ceasing. Which doesn't mean that 24 hours a day, 7 days a week that you're on your knees. It means that you live a life of prayer. You live a life of rejoicing in who God is. And you live a, a life of thankfulness of gratefulness. Richard said something he didn't even realize he said it when he was standing up here. He said, we get to gather. I don't know if y'all caught that. Not we got to go to church. We get to come to church. Y'all, we live in a free country. No, they don't get to go to church in China. There's places all over the planet they don't get to. It is a privilege for us to be able to do this. Y'all, the ending of Habakkuk is so beautiful because he begins with an interrogation of God, and it ends with an, with an, an intercession by God. Worry gets transformed into worship. T uh, terror gets transformed into trust. Fear gets turned into faith. Turn fear. I'm not minimizing the world's fear. The world is scared to death of what's going on right now. You and I have got to walk through it differently. If we are a believer, we've got a different set of lenses on because we win at the end of the day. We win. Y'all, this, this verse, and I wasn't going to do this, and I know I'm crazy time, but I, 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 need, I need to do this. There's a verse, two verses, because we need to walk through life differently. This is Philippians chapter 4. And Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Does that mean be anxious in some things? Be anxious in nothing, in nothing. Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, does that mean pray about some stuff? No. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. It's really the same thing he told the, 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 uh, the church in Thessalonica in that verse. He says, let your request be made known to God. Does that mean that every single prayer that you pray and every single thing that you want is going to be answered in the timing and in the way that you want it to be answered. It does not. That is not the promise of Scripture. The very next verse is the promise. Paul says, lay it all at the cross. Lay it all in front of the Lord. Pour out your heart. Pour out your soul. And yes, let your request be made known to God. But the promise is this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When that doctor looked at me and told me I had cancer, that is what I thought about. And I'm telling you, the second the words came out of his mouth, I had peace that was independent of, of the circumstance. The peace was independent of whatever the biopsy showed and whatever the future held. Because you know why? When Paul and when the Lord says we win... When, when, when 
God promises through the prophet Jeremiah that he wants to have, for us to have peace and hope and a future. If I had died in that moment, like I don't want to die, trust me. But if I'd have died in that moment, I knew that I won. Like I knew I won. And that's the peace that is promised. So whatever is going on in your life, and it has something to do with coronavirus or not, the Lord wants you to have peace. Peace in the fire. He does not promise us a, a, a stormless life. He doesn't promise us a fireless life. But he promises us peace in the storm. Peace in the storm. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today. And we love you. And we trust you. And we believe in you. Because you're trustworthy. And you're faithful. Even in the middle of us being faithless. Even in the middle of us being unlovable, you loved us. That is the gospel. That is the gospel, Lord, that, that we deserve nothing, that we are unlovable, and yet you died for us. You hung on that cross, and you said it is finished. You said it is finished. The work that you came to accomplish was done on that cross. And so, Lord, the, your gospel message is so simple. It is repent. Repent, turn, and believe. Repent and believe that what happened that weekend, that first Easter weekend, that it really did happen. Lord, that you died on that cross to take care of our sin and you ran out of the grave alive to seal the deal. So, Lord, my prayer is that if, if, if you have never said yes, and if you want the promises in Philippians and the promises in the book of Romans, particularly 8.28, if you want that to apply to you, if you want to know that you know that you know that you win at the end of the day, say yes to him today because you can. That offer is there. It is always there. And so I would invite you to just pray this little prayer to yourself or out loud. Lord, today is the day that I invite you into my heart to save me. Today is the day that I want to be saved. Today is the day that I say yes to that offer and I repent and I do believe. And I would invite you, if that is the case for you, to make your way down to this cross or to make your way to the back of the room um, to, to somebody on our prayer team and talk about this. It's a big deal, y'all. It is a big deal. So let me pray real quick. Lord, we love you today. We thank you that you're a promise-keeping God, that you're a promise-making God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation that you give us of who you are. And Lord, my prayers that somebody today heard this message, heard your words. They woke up this morning lost, but they're going to bed found. Lord, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name, amen.